Welcome to the Unforgiving 60 with your hosts, Ben Pronk and Tim Curtis. As two ex-SAS guys armed with MBAs, Ben and Tim seek out people leading lives less ordinary and talk with them about how they fill their unforgiving minutes and what helps them go always a little further. Like intellectual bowerbirds, we aim to collect shiny little objects of knowledge that we think can help build better humans. Welcome to the Unforgiving 60 podcast. I'm Tim Curtis, as always, with my co-host, Ben Pronk. Hello, Tim. Professional athletes. Mm-hmm. In this episode, us. we are joined in the studio <laughs> by another professional athlete, <laughs> <laughs> Ian Pryor. No, far, far fitter, um, younger, better looking than us. A guy who, at 179 centimetres and, to use his phrase, 80 kilos ringing wet, has spent... 86. uh, Has spent over a decade playing professional rugby Mm. against people much bigger, much broader, much heavier than him. A guy who um, actually struggled, was on the fringe of... Uh, representative rugby during his schoolboy's years, found some success in university rugby, and then got an opportunity with the Queensland Reds. He's actually played rugby in three different super franchises currently in um, the Western Force, where he's also been the captain of the club. What's interesting about him is, sure, his rugby career, but also his wider philosophies, the things that he does, the habits and practices that he uses to try and make himself a better player, but also to extend his shelf life as a professional rugby player. Yeah, absolutely. And as long-suffering listeners would probably know, I'm not the sports guy. Um, I kind of glazed over or, or certainly lost track when people start talking about five-eighths and numbers, 16s and 12s and, mm-hmm. and rugby stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's a lot more to this conversation than just Ian's amazing sporting career. Um, he talks about leadership uh, in a rugby context. He talks about the difference between technical skills and leadership skills in the rugby context, but with much broader applicability. And uh, to your point, Tim, um, very philosophical view, uh, not only on in-the-moment stuff like emotional regulation and, and how he's upped his mind game, which I think is applicable to any walk of life, but also the longevity, you know, the approach he's taken to such a high impact, such a cruel and unforgiving uh, vocation as professional sport, um, the way he's stayed at that top level for so long. I I think there's a lot of insights there that um, are are really worth reflecting on. Mm. Uh, Also spent time growing up in Zimbabwe. So yeah, he'll give us his thoughts on Zimbabwe as a place for a young fella and why are, um, why are there plenty of great athletes coming out of yeah. Zimbabwe? And then zooming out, we'll talk a bit more about the state of Australian rugby, um, reflecting on whether Australian rugby can be rebuilt, where are the fracture lines, what needs to be put together in this jigsaw puzzle that equals a nice rugby picture. Nah, it's all good stuff and um, yeah, rugby fan or not, I think there's gonna be a lot in there for all our listeners. Well. Let's get on with the show. Our special guest today. 
today, Ian Pryor. Ian, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on, lads. Pleasure to be here. We're al fresco today because it is steaming hot <laughs> in provide. Perth. We, we whined at the start of Jazz's episode about how hot it was in the booth. It is now 41 degrees outside. Our air conditioning in the office writ large is on the fritz. Um, it would be suicide to go in the booth. And so we're, we're in the wider office, slightly less acoustically sound. But um, hopefully it'll give us a bit more longevity before we pass out. Yeah, please excuse the audio, but it might be good for all of our sanity. So welcome to the Not The Podcast studio, but to the podcast, Ian. Thanks for having me. I was excited uh, for our Bikram podcasting, so let's go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I like that. It's a bit Bikram-like. <laughs> um, all right. Plenty of things to unpack today. Uh, professional sports, time in family, what happens after professional sports. And also the state of rugby in Australia. If we could, if we could do those, that would be most excellent. You have a link back into Africa. In fact, this year you're the second person that spent time on the African mm-hmm. continent that we've had as a guest. Dr. Rob Barber, who was born in Kenya, now living in Tanzania, has been an earlier guest. Could you talk about um, your family migrating and you know your links back to Africa? Yeah, sure. So. Um Parents obviously migrated over in 88, 87 um, via New Zealand. Dad was an agronomist um, looking for a a better start at life um, after everything happened with the civil unrest of the bush war. Um, I was born in Bundaberg. We moved to Rockhampton and then mum was sort of getting a bit homesick. So we moved back to Zim in 93, spent a number of years there. um, And then once obviously we saw the declining state, well, my family saw the declining state of Zimbabwe again we uh, decided to settle back in Brisbane so got very fond memories of growing up in Zimbabwe a lot of time spent on different family farms and you know riding motorbikes four-wheelers um, chasing wildlife and it was a great childhood for the limited time I had there but uh, some very fond memories for myself and my family. So the media hasn't been kind to Zimbabwe what's it like? Could you explain a different perspective than what we've been picking up in the media for the last two decades? Yeah, sure. So um, at its best, you know, one word's probably majestic. Um, <laughs> you know, you've got the red um, soils that run throughout Zimbabwe there, and then you've got some deep rainforest areas that are, you know, high humidity. And just I think the great thing about that country was, you know, it was a small country. Everyone relied on each other, that small community kind of feel. Mm. Um, and, you know, Back in its prime, as Rhodesia punched well above its weight in terms of, you know, economic GDP and agricultural system and the mining and things like that. So, everyone that you speak to that grew up there speaks fondly of it. Obviously, just um, declined a little bit, and and a few people uh, decided to you know take their families elsewhere. And sort of sporting as well. You you hear a sort of disproportionate representation from you know Rhodesia and then Zim in terms of international sporting stage. Was that part of your lifestyle growing up? Yeah, absolutely. So. Um, big um sport was a massive part of my family sorry so my you know one grandfather played for natal um under 20s while he was still farming and things like that the other grandfather played for border and he went to a school in Africa called dale college and dad was you know a sports nut growing up mum same thing until she had a light airplane accident um in 84 and um yeah just a very sporty family same thing small town small community so sport kind of brings you together um and gives you something to celebrate what is it about rugby david pocock also a zimbabwean what is it, it is. about rugby there um a few things obviously the camaraderie probably the brutality of the sport as well <laughs> um running into other humans at high velocity in a confined space um seems a little <laughs> bit counterproductive but yeah definitely just the camaraderie and i think the th- 
the point of difference for rugby union is that it's a game for all sizes and body shapes. You know, one to fifteen, everyone's different body shape. It's not your tall, lean player or your stocky player. There's a mm. position for everyone, and I think that's why it's such a great global game. <laughs> Short, fat players, as I recall, in my very limited rugby screen, they got to run as well. Yeah, exactly. But you're not a short, fat player. Could you describe um, your height, weight? Sure. So I'm a halfback and fly half um, at times. So I'm 179 centimetres tall, 84.5 kilos. So definitely not the tallest or biggest. Um, more of the sort of you know quarterback or midfield for other sports reference, that playmaker, conductor style position. So lots of running, mm-hmm. which uh, luckily... I've grown to enjoy um, and not one of those big blokes that are repetitively running into each other. So I let the, the big boys do the work and then we sort of do the conductor thing out the, out the back there. Yeah, speaking of which, we've just had Super Bowl 50... Mm, 11 million. Conclude. And, you know, you talk about big blokes running in, into each other. The, the sort of long-standing joke between Australians and Americans is that our sport does it without helmets and pads. But um, do, is there a sort of compare and contrast? Do you, do you look at um, certainly the, the linebacker-type positions in uh, NFL and think, Jesus, that's brutal, or, or mm. think, you know, I wouldn't mind a bit of padding with some of the hits you're taking in rugby? Yeah, definitely. Um, I think there's obviously, you know, an appreciation of the athlete that's over there in America mm. and just the depth that they've got over there. And you see some of these... Um, athletes move around like geez that's that's pretty incredible but excuse me from the same token I've heard them say the same thing about us and rugby league they say Mm. how you guys run each other without pads and helmets you know so it's a bit of a a bit of madness on both ends I think but (laughs) yeah um, yeah, it's definitely you know some of the skill sets those guys have is is incredible so at at 179 and you know 80 odd kilos ring and wet (laughs) (laughs) if you were playing NFL where would you play Oh, I definitely have to be a quarterback. Uh, probably not fast enough for running back. Uh, but also being quarterback and seeing those linemen and coming for you, you'd be, um, you know, you'd be pretty nervous. So, well, it's not uncommon, you know, for you to be seeing flankers on number eights coming at you. What would the difference be? Yeah, that's right. Just I guess I know the game of rugby, so you get to know what you can and can't do, and how to get out of sticky situations. And sometimes mm-hmm. we just have to cop it on the chin. So I'm sure it'd be the same as a quarterback, and you've got a big fella coming through you. Uh, fortunately, in rugby we can't take the knee like they mm. can in uh, NFL to sort of call a timeout and that's the end of the play. I wish we could. <laughs> well, all you, the well, surrender. <laughs> well, well, you can. You're just going to get really hurt. That's right. That's right. Uh, do, it's not a great look either. Do you actually union. recall a time where you would have taken the knee? Have there been any moments where you've seen a yeah, front train coming on you yeah. and thought, yeah. There was one guy overseas, uh, Botka is his last name. It's Fijian, 115 kilos, <laughs> runs the 100 and, you know, 10-something. And I was playing for Harlequins at fullback, actually, so out of position, kicked the ball long big chase line in front of me which is pretty normal you know you have this line then you sort of come through and everyone does their job but I just watched the C part in front of me <laughs> and he smiled mid running at me and I thought well, here we go this is gonna hurt so I dived his right leg as hard as I could and luckily he sort of fell over me and went to ground and looked like I got the job done and couldn't feel my shoulder for a couple minutes but we were good to go well done I got seven to eight years in Zimbabwe after being born in Rockhampton and then you come back in 2000 to Australia how was growing up post Zimbabwe? Um, oh, for me, you know, fantastic. I had a pretty um, lucky Aussie childhood. Uh, we didn't come back um, with too much money. Mum and Dad bought a small business like most migrants over here and, you know, the heart and soul of trying to put the kids through school and, you know, watching them work long hours and hard hours. But we just immersed ourselves in the community and sport was a massive part of, you know, um, my background and what I enjoyed in my childhood. So cricket season was seven days a week of cricket. Rugby mm. season was the same when we weren't there. We're back at a mate's place playing backyard cricket or rugby and just honing your skills. But through the fun dimension, we weren't 
you know obviously we were competitive and we were playing for scores but you mm. still do eight hours of cricket and come back to the mate's shed and do another couple of hours before dinner so, so your rugby biography speaks for itself has your cricket bio <laughs> funny enough i was probably actually better at cricket at school <laughs> um but i think i enjoyed rugby a bit more and i don't know if it was burnout because i sort of played cricket in the pre-2020 era um so probably would have been good for that to come on a little bit earlier would have enjoyed it but um just really you know enjoyed the rugby side and the camaraderie and I think just the physicality of the sport really you know as a smaller bloke which sounds quite ironic I quite <laughs> enjoyed so um it's obviously in my DNA you know through dad and both grandparents playing decent level rugby there in different positions so one granddad was a hooker the other one was a winger I've ended up in the middle at halfback <laughs> and then dad was the 10-15 so um yeah outside of that camping fishing um just enjoying the great outdoors of the great southeast and how about your school biography uh, what school how did you go uh so Ormiston college uh very much a jock so got a middle of the road op op12 i think it was so i think it's atar now so um i was going to ride at school looking at single digits and then you know had this dream which started at the rugby world cup you know and uh watching test match cricket with dad and mum and you know that's what i want to do you know mm-hmm. hearing the the players or the gladiators almost entering the arena hearing the roar and you know getting goosebumps even thinking about it now um, I was like that's what I want to do with my life um, so uh, once I decided I couldn't get an OP1 to get into physiotherapy which mm-hmm. was the original goal I said okay exercise science and I saw at the time it was a 12 so I thought right I'll f- focus on my sport and just do what I need to do to get through school I managed to ducks PE so that was a good sign that if I did want to apply to myself in certain things I could mm-hmm. um, and yeah, Ormiston College, so small uh, TAS school out in the Redlands, and we punched above our weight in sport and cricket and rugby. But I think it really sort of set up my resilience to make as a professional athlete in the end because we weren't the big school, had to fight a little bit harder to get into these teams and missed out on a f- quite a few state teams growing up in and around the traps. Shadow player, you know, always there, but there and thereabouts, not quite good enough. Mm-hmm. Um, and luckily, you know, I had a great sport network in my family, my friends. Um, so I was able to get back up after feeling a bit sorry for myself and you know chase after the next goal and seek that improvement to you know be a little bit better. Um, David Epstein writes a lot and he, he wrote a book called Range about um, well, he offers a hypothesis that, that some of the best sports stars have a varied background. They, they didn't specialise early and they've done a bunch of different things. At what stage did you sort of say, no, rugby's where I want to go? You, you've said you, you sort of enjoyed cricket, you enjoyed rugby. You know, what stage did you double down on rugby? Yeah, any sport to get out of school really, cross-country <laughs> athletics. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. But it was definitely a point in grade 12 where the seasons were starting to cross over. I remember going from a day where it was the back end of cricket season and the start of rugby season um, and doing pre-seasons and all these kind of things. And I went from a regional academy uh, fitness testing, strength testing session on a Sunday. So I played cricket all day Saturday for the first 11 um, back then. And then 
yeah, next day, testing, conditioning games from seven till nine, then went and played all day representative cricket Sunday, and then there was this pre-season competition that started through the club games that had a club game that night at five o'clock. So I've done this massive weekend and I was driving home with dad and he said, mate, you're going to have to choose. <laughs> Otherwise, Was it because he was sick of yeah, driving? I th- yeah, I think, I think that's what it was. But he said, oh, your boy's not going to survive. But I think it was more for his driving. The K's on the ute. But um, yeah, it was kind of at that point because I did feel pretty you know, physically fatigued at that point with school and you know that kind of pressure and trying to get all that right um, to probably make a choice about what I want to... I'd still play cricket for fun, mm-hmm. but definitely I want to try and target that. Um, on top of obviously the idea with uh, where I flirted with going to the military as well. Mm. Let's talk about that because your your dad was uh, served in the Rhodesian Bush War. Your grandfather was in World War Two. You had desires to perhaps join the army, be a helicopter pilot, or join the special forces. Yep, that was the dream. A, a bit binary, perhaps. Why didn't you go there? Um, yeah, look, I grew up with three posters on my wall in my room. Um, there's a poster Ricky Ponting who was my cricket hero, Matt Burke, who was my rugby hero, and then there was actually an SAS post, and I'm pretty sure Ben's in it by chance. <laughs> so, you know, oh, so, doubt it. Yeah. I'll claim it anyway. The, anyone in a gas mask. Photo of those four blokes walking towards the hills and saying, you know, some jobs don't take a whole army. Um, and I was like, okay, well, these are the three domains I'm pretty keen to go into. And um, I think what led me away from that um, was the chance to join an academy at University of Queensland where mm-hmm. I got accepted to study because um, that's what I'd sort of been looking for because I'd been in that TAS school, hadn't made the Queensland um, representative teams, hadn't made the national talent squad, all those kinds of things. So the chance to go and join that was really, um, you know, a really big carrot that was dangled in front of me. And, you know, dad sort of said, oh, look, you can always, if it doesn't work out within a year, you can always apply and still mm-hmm. go um, and have a crack at, you know, uh, being a pilot or doing selection and things like that and yeah luckily I uh, just kind of or unluckily depends which way to look at it kind of ran from there um, in terms of the sporting world and enjoying university trying to work and you know make my career in rugby and going from there. What was it about the academy how does it differ from a rugby club? Yeah so it was more just a bit specialised training and a bit more of a regimed um, skills weights mental skills um, just more of a framework rather than sort of your you know, your club Tuesday, Thursday, which I'd done and I was happy to do, but I'd always sort of look to go the extra mile. So um, sort of going backward, going back a little bit to school where I wasn't making these teams, I was sort of back in the days of dial-up internet, um, <laughs> trying to research strength conditioning programs and didn't have access to what some of these other guys had access to in these academies and these talent squads. So I thought, right, oh, well, they're training and I'm not, so they're getting better and I'm not. So I need to, you know, do a bit of training on my own or seek out some mentors and things like that. So I'd always looked for that previously and then for that to come along was a you know a massive thing that was that I was attracted to that I wanted to be involved with Given what we were just talking about sort of with that Epstein concept of generalization versus specialization um, I, I don't know where I stand because you, you see some really uh, profound examples of deep specialists so Tiger Woods is often yeah. cited Serena Williams um, Serena Wi- yeah. The, yeah, both Williams sisters um, Jakob Ingebrigtsen if you're following the 1500 um, that kid was training since he was 10 with a view yeah. and he, he won gold at the last Olympics and he may well do the same in Paris um, they are deep specialists they yeah. picked their event early and they've trained um, you had that broader range and, and found more specialization at the academy do you look back and think part of your wishes you you had have specialized early or or are you comfortable having that breadth yeah i think i'm comfortable having had that breath and i think it's set me up again in terms of that resilience and being able to think on your feet picture because you might see a picture you're not used to in rugby or cricket whatever it may be and you might 
applied principles from the other sport yeah. to apply into that skill set or you know this kind of thing or that so i think it definitely set me up and from the athletes i've been lucky enough to play with the best ones were the ones that generalized growing mm. up you know they played cricket right they, they came out of school and they got offered a cricket scholarship and a an afl contract and a rugby contract <laughs> like Eric Barnes had like five or six things. It was like swimming, league, AFL, cricket, rugby. And I said, how'd you pick? You know, and <laughs> just these guys that can just cross over quite well and adapt really well on the run. And um, I think also just their mental skill set has been a lot better from what I've seen. Yeah. A bit more resilient and, you know, they back themselves amongst other things. So it is an interesting um, debate, but definitely from what I've seen and I've been happy that I generalised early. Mm. Uh, so studying full time and you're on the fringe of the Australian under 20 rugby side and then a pathway opens up. Can you talk about getting selected for Australian under 20? Yeah, sure. So um, we had all these, as it used to be, these trials and you start with a big squad and they narrow it, narrow it down and got to the final 46 and I was the only player there that didn't have a contract. So I was the only bloke there in club kit, you know, which I thrived on. I was like, oh, here we go. You know, everyone's going to write me off this kind of thing or the other. Um, did my job, thought I'd put my best foot forward and they normally take three halfbacks that year, they take two, of course. I thought, <laughs> oh, here we go, <laughs> come up short again. Um, so I was a bit disappointed in that, naturally, and, you know, thinking, as you do at that age, why me? You know, I've put my best foot forward, but you could understand the two guys I was up against were playing super rugby full-time at that point. So hmm. I was like, okay, that's going to take a who, real... Who were they? Did they go so on? So Nick White, okay. um, yeah, who's up playing. here now at the force, still yeah. playing, yep. Um, and Justin Turner, who was touted that year. He was playing that good of Super Rugby to play for the Wallabies at 20 years old. So wow. I was like, okay, what, that's... What happened to Justin Turner? Uh, he's now still in Perth uh, managing a, a gym um, along with Dane Hallett-Petty, but he just unfortunately had a, a run of injuries, as, as some mm. people have, and, you know, real methodical trainer, great person, actually ex-Zimbo as well, mm-hmm. and, you know, just was unlucky with injuries at the wrong time. So... Um, I was actually, yeah, you know, sort of trying to get over that for a couple of weeks. I was living at King's College at UQ at that point, and my uh, phone in the room rings, which never rings unless it's one of your mates saying, right, I've come over here and this, that, and the other. And the phone rings, pick it up, it goes, G'day, mate, this is you and Mackenzie. And I said, oh, piss off, mate. And so it was one of my roommates, just hung up straight up on it because I thought they were trying to cheer me up. <laughs> the phone rings again, G'day, mate, this is you and Mackenzie. I said, seriously, lads, I appreciate what you're doing here, but please leave me alone, hang up again. <laughs> third time, phone rings. Because why wouldn't he ring me on my mobile, you mm. know? Um, third time rings. Seriously, mate, don't answer. Uh, don't hang up, this is you, McKenzie. Sorry, Mr. McKenzie. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know? So I was like, Jesus. Um, and at the time, he was a coach of Queensland. He, at the time, he was the coach of Queensland Reds, and I thought, you know, I'm just playing club footy and just missed out on 20s. Why would he call me anyway? Um, so he called me in, wanted to have a chat to me, interview me, and it was fascinating, went in, didn't know what to do, what to wear, so I wore like a suit and or a university Tarakash suit back at the time. <laughs> yeah, it's <laughs> not right. my best look, but uh, living uh, on youth allowance. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Pretty sure it was pinstripe too. Has your wardrobe improved? Uh, I'd like to say yes, some would probably say no. <laughs> okay. um, and, you know, went in there and it was all the coaches and himself and, you know, went through attack, what's your skill set, defence, strength, conditioning, and he was just sitting there taking notes and... Um, one thing that's always stuck with me is the three questions he asked me. They were none, nothing to do with rugby. Mm. So he said, you know, uh, what does your family do? Um, Mum and dad still together. Um, and what interests you outside of rugby? I thought, hmm. wow, you know, here we go. He's the head coach of the Queensland Reds. Asked me nothing about rugby. So that had all sort of been done, but it just really fascinated me. Before, um, before we leave that, a decade later or longer, 
Why do you think he asked those questions? Why was it relevant? Um, I think as a head coach, his skill set was working with the person and the people management and the motivating aspect. Um, he was a fascinating coach to have around the psychology almost of hmm. battle or of war. Hmm. So there were stories about um, when he was the Waratahs coach and they'd never beaten the Brumbies in Canberra. He wanted to go down there and check things up and say, right, if we do the same thing, we go down the same time, stay in the same place, eat the same meal, it's not going to change, right? So there was a place in Canberra, um, you blokes probably remember, in Kingston, um, the grind it was called, a cafe, Mm -hmm. that all the Brummies would eat on a Friday morning before a game. So he went down a day early with the Waratahs and the team bus and he parked the bus out the front of the cafe and made all the Waratahs boys eat their breakfast there. <laughs> As almost like, well, we're in your neighbourhood now. We're just here to rock up and get beaten. Um, and then they ended up being the Brumbies that week. So he was, long story short, he was big on the psychological aspect of mm-hmm. sport and you know match play and warfare kind of thing. So, um, yeah, obviously a great man manager and motivator and um, I think that's why... He sort of asked those questions, and James Kerr uncovers a bit of that in the book Legacy, Legacy um, where he identifies that one of the All Blacks mantras is "Great people make great All Blacks." That the best rugby players in New Zealand will never be an All Black unless they're a great person. Yeah, definitely. And I think you look at you know someone like the greatest All Black probably that's ever played, Richie McCall. You know, he wasn't the strongest, the fastest. He was definitely one of the fittest, but not the most skillful on paper. But you know, had this great awe around him, was a great person, piloted away from footy, um, you know, had all these great attributes and just wanted to be in the arena amongst it. And you know, there's definitely more talented players, but, you know. Have you seen outliers to that? Um, we've got a, a really good friend, Charlie Kay, who mm-hmm. I think we've mentioned on a previous podcast as well, who played um, representative level football. He, he's sort of closer to our age, so probably a generation ahead. But talks a lot about that idea that, that the best players that he played with and the most humble players were, were often um, real stars. But he also talks about some outliers who were fantastic on the field but real assholes, and it presented a conundrum in that the team kind of valued their skills but they were almost toxic in, in mm. times. Have, and clearly we're not asking for names, but have you seen that as well in, in team yeah, environments? Yeah, definitely. I, th- I guess that's the challenge when you're in high performance, right? You live and die by the sword and your wins and losses and it's that balance between team culture, team harmony and what we stand for and, okay, this player's a real point of difference, but maybe they're not best for the team mm. um, and that maverick kind of mentality. Mm-hmm. So um, trying to bring those two together, I think, is a really interesting dynamic and I think that's what Ewan McKenzie did really well is, you know, he'd let the Mavericks be the Mavericks and then he'd let the other guys be part of the team and you know because everyone is different and everyone Mm. um everyone ticks differently you know what makes them tick so I think that was his real strength but I've definitely yeah seen both and that's when you sort of just okay what do we stand for what's our purpose what are our standards what are our principles and you know results and how those come together and that old cliche you know you must have or I'm interested in your opinion but you know the what do they say? The the champion team beats the team of champions. That you know you can't just plug a bunch of maverick stars together. That 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 solidarity you get from a team of good humans working well together is going to outperform it every time. Is is that consistent with your experience? Yeah, definitely. And I, there was a study done. I can't remember the the author off the top of my head. Sorry, but um, that studied you know small town professional sporting outfits and mm. their success rate, and it's high above you know the glitz and glam clubs and the glitz and glam that live in the city and you know the the um bunch of you know renegades and mavericks compared yep. to just you know the guys that are getting off that, that are wanting to be the champion team rather than the team of champions so yeah. i've definitely seen that um in my sporting context yeah 
So back to you and Mackenzie, he's asked his three questions and what happens next? He has and he just says, righto, well, thanks for coming in today. We'll be in touch. I said, okay. Well, walked out, called out. I said, I don't know what happened, but um, we'll see how we go. Anyway, I get a call a few days later from the academy manager who offers me a contract. I don't have an agent at this point and know if I needed one or not. Um, signs me on my first contract for $7,000 a year. Um, and the way they'd structured it was that I was going to be essentially the third halfback of the Queensland Reds, but in the academy team. So I was going to train full-time with you know $7,000 of income um, <laughs> while living, at, living away from home. So that was going to be a challenge. Um, and went in, trained with the academy, and you know, McGenzie Paul said, mate, you should probably get yourself an agent. I said, oh, I appreciate the support, uh, the you know, advice. What, uh, why is that? He goes, oh, well, you probably should have been on a rookie contract based on what we're uh, asking of you. I said, okay, thanks for the, the information after, but that's all right. <laughs> so when found an agent after that. And yeah, to be honest, at 19, turning 20, um, it was all a bit of a whirlwind because 12 months later, um, standing at Suncorp Stadium, having just won, being a part of the team that just won the Super Rugby title. Mm. You know, in my hometown, 60,000 people at Suncorp Stadium, 20 years old, thinking, Jesus, what just happened in that 12 months? Um, so that was a real eye-opener, you know, a really credible experience, just being part of this team that had really struggled in 2007, 2008, 2009, had a little bit of momentum 2010, and then just sort of blitzed out of the gates 2011 with um, the right players at the right time and cohesion, um, which Ben Darwin of Gameline Analytics really um, nails down on in terms of of his studies of successful teams and organisations um, because all these guys had sort of played underage footy together and come mm-hmm. through and then finally clicked and, yeah, 2011, the title was theirs. You, you believe in that, the consistency of team? We were talking a bit before we came on air about how you know football cha- teams, any professional sporting team, actually do have a reasonable turnover compared to special forces units of the same size. You know, you... You look at a troop or platoon, your turnover in any given year wouldn't be anywhere near a professional sports side, I wouldn't imagine. Yeah, I don't know. Depends on the years, but yeah, I can. Mm-hmm. But you believe in the, the yeah, fact definitely. that the 2011 uh, victory had a lot to do with the the sort of coherence from way back Yeah, definitely. Play? And these guys that have you know been playing together since 16, 17, they know how their mates and their teammates going to react under pressure, what they're going to do in this scenario, what pictures they're looking for in terms of the game. Okay, we're going to take this option or that option rather than having to second-guess each other and make the mistake and learn from it under the biggest pressure environment, which is that Super Rugby final. They've been through that before. Um, they've seen that picture. They've worked it out. And they know each other off the field. You know, it's that cliche of that relationship of mm. knowing the person you're working with and working for and you do anything for them so mm. I definitely think that was a case of that and so you're standing there in 2011 having won the the um, sort of championship and and you know you, you sort of described this journey from having these sort of posters in your your room to actually now essentially being in the poster what what did it feel like was it a, a sense of accomplishment was there a sense of um uh, I don't know. Is that it, or, or you know, was it was it a letdown? Was it was it everything you dreamed of, or was it just you were so in the moment that you were just looking at the next thing? Yeah, it was euphoric, but I, I don't think I quite had the maturity um, to really appreciate it for what it was because I just came into professional footy and this just happened. You know, I was like, oh, always so happens. This, this yeah, yeah. always happens. You know, just roll <laughs> on from here and oh, be part win. of these be part of these teams that just win championships and. You know, luckily I had the best seat in the house. I was on the bench but didn't get on the field. That's probably a side <laughs> note I probably should have mentioned. But um, I remember reflecting on it with my dad a couple of weeks later. 
you know, because, you know, only 12, 18 months before, I'd drive to work for him, to labour him, you know, talk about, geez, how good would it be to be, play a couple of games for the Queens and Reds? You know, that would mm. be a life, a life achievement to come from where yeah. we've come from to get that. And now we're sitting there going, geez, what, what just happened? You know <laughs> what I mean? And, um, it was really special to do in front of family and friends and all these people that had been there along your journey, you know, at high school, going to these parties and, yep, okay, well, can't have a too big a night because I've got footy tomorrow or cricket tomorrow and all the... The good mates might say, "Oh, mate, you're going to make it one day. Don't worry, keep going." Yeah. And you know that social layer, um, yeah, yeah, you know, which is in your book, obviously. And um, for all of those people to be there for that special moment and be able to do the lap around the field and see people I hadn't seen maybe for five years, you know, mm. from junior school or junior cricket or senior cricket or school, was really special. Um, Did you, you see know, anyone that had given you shit and you were able to just go, "Yeah, you're, <laughs> you're, you're now, too buddy. small, you're too yeah. high, you'll never be a professional <laughs> rugby player." Yeah, one seventy nine. That's a right. Joke. My year twelve boy, she just said I wouldn't amount to anything. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I hope he was there somewhere. Um, no, I, I didn't. But um, I think even if I did, to be fair, you know, everyone would have appreciated that man in the arena, you know, mentality, thinking, "Okay, well, this guy's, you know, dedicated." to go to this and he's been lucky enough to get the chance so mm. yeah and no, I was very very lucky to be able to do that so 2011 you decide you're going to put your agent to work yeah so I got the approach um, obviously most people think geez why doesn't he just stay there for a few years but after that um, I got approached early in the year to be part of the ST Brumbies who are going to go through a rebuild and going to be able to work with Jake White World Cup winning South African coach mm. Stephen Larkham greatest fly half Wallabies have ever had George Gregan goes halfback Laurie Fisher who was renowned as a great forwards coach and Dean Benton um, who I probably credit today for having the longevity I've had in my career um, mm -hmm. to be honest he was strength and conditioning yeah he was yeah. yeah strength and conditioning head of high performance um, and just set the expectations of what it is to be an elite athlete and how you need to treat your body and it's a lifestyle it's not just the job um, I had the chance to do that and I thought you know just from just even just Jake once even like I said well if I'm going to learn about rugby mm those two guys I really want to learn from and it was really hard like to make that choice to go down there because we were winning and there was a lot of momentum and everyone was telling you around Brisbane how good you guys were and all this kind of stuff and it would have been the easy thing to do but I really wanted the challenge and to go to a new environment not know anyone essentially move away from home and you know see if I could mix it with the best and um, yeah went down to Canberra. Were you being given more of a guarantee that you might be in the starting 15 than you were in the Reds? Um, there were and, definitely, and was that a factor? It was definitely a factor. Um, you know, Will Genia was World Player of the Year at 22. Mm. <laughs> so um, as much as I wanted to learn off him, I wanted to be able to play a bit more and challenge myself in the environment um, and in the arena. So there definitely wasn't a promise, but, you know, two, three young halfbacks going at it down in Canberra, I sort of backed myself a bit more, I guess, there than staying and playing five, ten minutes here and there and trying to learn that way mm. um, with the Reds. So... I think the year later Will Genny did his knee actually so mm -hmm. um, I might have had more of a chance then but you know <laughs> never, timing never, is everything in life that's never right. waste a good crisis that's right but um, yeah made the move down to Canberra and you know grew up a little bit which was good uh, how did the clubs contrast I mean both super rugby clubs different states of the same country what was the difference um, the Brumbies ethos was more around you know how it developed was the ragtag bunch you know they were sort of the leftovers when they initially started from Queensland, New South Wales, and that was very much the mentality and sort of the, the fabric um, of the club, which I really enjoyed, a real humility, willingness to work for each other, you know, small union, small state, working towards that greater purpose to prove people wrong. 
Um, so, you know, meeting a guy like George Gregan, he goes, G'day, mate. I'm George Gregan. I said, Yes, sir. I know who you are, Mr. Gregan. <laughs> Joe Roth, the same. Met him in a flannel joggers and uh, jeans and a pair of joggers. I thought, This guy's one of the greatest wallabies ever. He's G'day, mate. I'm Joe. Yeah, I know who you are, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that really, you know, appealed to me. And that, that's something I really enjoyed. And just what we talked about before that small town community um, compared to the Reds, which obviously was, you know, one of the bigger unions in Australia. And. Um, a lot more moving parts and a bigger, you know, estate as it is. Um, that was what sort of drew me down to the ACT and what I enjoyed as part of the club. Although Canberra's smaller, you know, you're talking about going to have your cup of coffee in the morning and there's a rugby side. Was there more scrutiny, more expectation? Did um, supporters in particular have greater access to you? Did, did that Was that a pressure? Yeah, absolutely. Day to day, they'd obviously be able to spot you a little bit easier with the, the smaller population in Canberra, but... I think probably it's probably more so to do with the timing of where I was at with the club when they'd just had a, you know, not their best year and they were looking to rebuild. We probably had a bit more leeway in that way. Like, oh, you guys are doing really well. Keep working hard. Good to see you young blokes going at it. So they were really supportive, um, you know, and they really rusted on fans over there. So um, I was quite lucky in that, you know, we just missed out on the finals that first year and the second year we were in the grand final. So mm-hmm. we had two pretty bumpy years there. So mm-hmm. um, I definitely think you're probably more open to being spotted in the public. So then obviously... As a role model, you need to make sure your behaviour is on par and, you know, you're being a good person because that can be scrutinised quite easily. But, yeah, we were really lucky in Canberra, I think. How does leadership work in a rugby club? So you, you rock up to the Brumbies, there's a, a formal structure, there's obviously player leadership, there's coaches, there's administrative staff, all that sort of stuff. There's obviously different experience levels in different positions. There's obviously lots of individuals and probably strong egos and characters and that sort of stuff. How do you see that that sort of, um, I guess, ideas of leadership, people pulling organisations together towards a goal? Where, how does that manifest in a club like, say, the Brumbies at that stage where it's rebuilding? Yeah, so it's a great question. Um, you know, I've seen many different methods and, and ways of going about it, but that year, I guess we are lucky and we were a bit of a ragtag bunch pulled together. Guys from club, guys you know, in and around the fringes of other teams. Um, then we had only three Wallabies at the time, Pat McCabe, Stephen Moore... Uh, and Christian Liliofano, sorry, Ben Alexander. So we had four. So it was quite easy in terms of our, hi- our hierarchical model. That's mm-hmm. a whole bunch of, that's the Bikram uh, podcast. Yeah. <laughs> Kick it in. My tongue's not working. Um, and yeah, they just sort of went with, the, all right, these are the leaders. You know, we're going to follow these guys. And then the coach ties it together with our purpose. You know, these are our aims. This is our why. This is what we're aiming to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I've been part of teams where we've voted for leadership group. And then, you know, the board has to say, yep, we're okay for this person to be captain. And then other um, teams where it's been like, right, oh, well, this is the captain, vice captain, and go from there. So all different models. But I think, you know, being a young bunch when I went to Canberra, that were pretty ambitious and part wanting to rebuild, it was quite easy to be like, right, these are the leaders. Mm-hmm. And actually, ben, um, Jake White went with a, not a traditional person that you thought would be captain in our first year, so he ended up picking Benny Mullen, mm-hmm. who was in his first year at the club too, played Waratahs, mm-hmm. played Queensland Reds, hadn't played for his country yet, um, but had led um, in Australian under 21s, I believe, earlier, so had some leadership credentials, and it was a really bold move um, and one that paid dividends because he was a great bloke a real gel between the older blokes yeah. and the younger blokes and um, just a great man in general so you know he went on to captain the Wallabies so yeah. it's made a good pick there but one that you sort of come into the environment and be like, 
is that is that the right person because you've got your Stephen Moore and these guys there because I was going to say there must be that tension between the technical skills so being wallabies being really good at your craft which can translate to leadership but doesn't necessarily translate yeah, to, to on-field leadership and yeah that have you seen that sort of work poorly where, where you've got someone who's an excellent player but uh, just not suited to that kind of leadership yeah role? definitely and guys that are really good technically but don't have the greatest people skills and mm. can't build those relationships mm. absolutely and you know that's sort of they end up in more of a on-field you know captaincy role mm-hmm. and then they might have supporters that are the glue that look after each other in terms of the players so um, it's hard to find someone who's the best of both yeah absolutely and then you have all right this person can be our leader and how can we complement that on either side whether it be people skills technical skills you know um, media skills things like that and um, how that all ties together what about informal leaders? So people who you played with, but they never formally held a role as a captain or even part of a leadership team. Any that you could cite who were really inspiring? That yeah, you George to? George Smith's the first one that comes to mind. Yeah. Uh, I got to play with him my last year at the Brumbies. He came in as injury cover for Dave Pocock when he was ACL and you know, wasn't a formal leader and you know, probably was playing the wrong generation. He'd have a few beers a night before a game, which is a bit of a no-no in terms <laughs> of the high-performance sphere, but you know, it's one of the best players in the world and you know, when he spoke, everybody listened yeah. because, you know, of what he had achieved on the field and his technical skills. But not only that, because he was humble to give everyone this time of day. No matter if you were in the academy, one of the staff, players, whoever you were, he gave you his time of day. And to have that amongst a world-class skill set um, is pretty special. So, yes, he's definitely one that comes straight to mind. Supplementary question, just from a different angle. You know, we've talked about resilient shepherds, a concept that's been pioneered by an old... Um, military colleague of ours, Pete Naschak, a US Navy SEAL, and his concept is that um, when the chips are down, people look to these individuals, resilient yep. shepherds, who might not hold a formal leadership role, in fact generally don't, yep. but they will get you through it. Any examples of resilient shepherds? Absolutely. So, um, you know, we'll be might be playing trial games, whatever it may be, and, um, you know, a player's been nominated by the coach to captain that that side for that game and you come into a huddle take your two breaths sort of your centering moment for everybody and then you know if the chips are down everyone will the first person everyone looks to is generally you know that shepherd in the group and that Mm. leader it's not always necessarily the captain it might be someone who's got a bit more experience and has been through the hard times and right well here's the answer here's the solution to this next sort of problem that we might be facing or how do we get out of this this ditch that we've dug ourselves that kind of thing so um yeah, obviously, like someone like Quay Cooper comes to mind. He wasn't a, a formal leader, mm. but he was sort of your tactician and the guy that was the conductor about, right, we're going to do this. It didn't need to be about why we're playing or the emotion of how to put your head in a ruck. It's like, we're going to go here, move this chess piece here, then we're going to strike, then we're going to score, things yeah. like that. So um, there's a few examples like that. I reckon that's a really cool concept because I think a lot of formal leaders can see these people as a threat. You know, and you said that moment, everyone comes in, the chips are down, and they're all looking at, for example, Quaid, there'd be a tendency if you're insecure as a on-field captain to say, no, 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 look at me, look at me, I've got the plan. But you can actually leverage, like you're on the same team. Yeah, you're yeah. pulling in the right direction. This dude's doing it, or a guy or girl, whatever's doing a, a massive solid. You know, it, it should be empowering to a leader, not threatening, but it, it can sometimes be a, almost seen as a challenge or, or whatever. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess I probably had that, you know, reflecting a little bit as a young leader as well because when we came back and to the Western Force and I was named captain, there were other guys that were more experienced than me and you know, probably had more runs on the board. 
and then I got named skipper and I thought, oh, okay, I've got to have the answers to everything. You know, <laughs> got to be across the board on everything. And then you, you're almost a bit nervous and we sign a guy like Jeremy Thrush, one of the one of the All Blacks that comes in. You're like, oh, how am I meant to tell this guy what to do? You know what I mean? Like, um, so I definitely think it's a young, uh, something that a young leader needs to develop and have mm. that, you know, um, abilities have confidence in themselves as a leader and you know like you said distributed around like okay i don't have the answers but someone else might have the answers and yeah. showing that vulnerability i think is important to people that you are leading as well because then it shows that they can be vulnerable and it's a safe space in terms of you know, psychological safety that if they don't know they'll ask a question that's okay yeah 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 turn on my tv said i don't believe it man two years with the Brumbies you decide once again your agent needs to earn, needs I need, to earn I need the beach. yeah I need the beach <laughs> so what happened then yeah so um was enjoying my time at the Brumbies again we pretty much got to the pinnacle uh lost the grand final against the Chiefs over in Hamilton which was you know one of the great rugby games just ran out of steam and just was ready for a change um felt like in terms of a rugby environment and like I said learned learned off guys like Dean Benton Steve Larkham George Regan how to be a professional what it takes uh, but now I wanted to get a balance away from my professional life. So get my layers sorted in terms of that. And obviously I'd visited Perth to play against the force, seen a couple of the beaches, had mm-hmm. to fall in love with City Beach and the likes. Mm-hmm. Um, and the opportunity came up where he said, Righto, there's a spot here if you want to jump over. Um, had the opportunity to set the Brumbies as well, but uh, decided again to not go on adventure, but challenge myself in a you know, new environment try and get the balance away from rugby right because uh, it can be all encompassing in a small town like that where it's that's all there is to do yeah. uh, besides drink a bit of coffee so in Canberra yeah. and uh, yeah made the move across the Nullarbor so 31 caps on the east coast and 110 on the west with the western fours um, how do you keep your body good for 140 plus caps um, can you maybe talk about the things that you do and we're also super keen to burrow into What's a strength and conditioning block look like pre-season? Yeah, sure. The so, um, like I said, the foundations were laid, um, you know, learning off guys like Dean Benton and George Gregan. George Gregan had a 17-year career, I think. I'm coming up to season 15. Is so. it true he could squat three times his body weight? Uh, bench twice. I think it was bench press. Okay. I'm sure he could squat it too, but bench press was the record he had at the Brumbies for a long time. Hmm. Two times his body weight at 80-something kilos, I think. Yeah, Jeez. pretty impressive. How, how do you go, Ben? <laughs> I don't. <laughs> I reckon, yeah, I, I struggle to think what percentage of my body weight, but yeah, certainly. Oh, gee, I'd be struggling to do one point point four percent of my body weight. Yeah, it'd be, it'd be a point. <laughs> runner's body. It's a runner's yeah, body. Go. That's There's right. right. Yeah, yeah. You're in a running block. That's right. <laughs> Extended running block. That's right. Need upper body. Thank you. That's yep. right. Um, so yeah, I guess as a professional, I think the biggest you need to work out is recovery what works for you how to recover because you've got no issue training hard because you've got guys telling you hmm. with gps units on your back how mm-hmm. far you're running how fast what your heart rate is if you're not working hard enough you're on the side doing extras and all that kind of stuff and i'd always sort of in my journey to try and get to professional rugby wanted to make sure my strength conditioning or you know my fitness and strength was on par so that if i did become professional all i had to learn was the technical tactical mm-hmm. not so much work on the physiological so um 
but I didn't know how to recover and I put myself in a hole quite a right. few times trying to train too hard and out train the opposition and you know training seven days a week on my own that kind of thing so you know learning off Dean Benton the importance of you know ice baths um Sauna, he was a big fan of sauna, which mm-hmm. came in handy in Canberra in the depths of winter there in the mornings <laughs> to wake the joints up for this <laughs> Queenslander. Um, and then obviously your nutrition. And then the one that, you know, I was probably a bit late on to was, and Ben and I have talked about this before, is the mental skills side. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, being a young bloke and as we know from the scientific literature that our prefrontal cortex doesn't exactly wire up at 25 and I certainly was one of the cases there. Um, you think you've got all the answers and, oh, no, don't need mental skills. I'll just, you know train harder work harder and that'll be the answer mm-hmm. um so uh meditate now uh visualization and the big one at the moment that i'm really enjoying is journaling right um and that's been the last sort of couple of years and that's the one i've probably found the most benefit of at the moment and um you know being a an alpha red-blooded male heard meditation thought it was a bit woo-woo all that mm-hmm. kind of stuff and it wasn't until i was doing a neuroscience elective um at you know uh edith county university sorry and there was a study on weightlifters that was you know these weightlifters lift three times a week these weightlifters lift once and they visualize twice a week and i thought oh, okay this is pretty done and dusted i know what the data is going to be here. The three time mm-hmm. lifters are going to be yeah, better easy days and then the data came out and there was a one percent difference mm-hmm. between both groups and i mm-hmm. could not believe it and they showed us the mris of their brain activity and the neural pathways that were stimulated both post meditation and both session is uh post lifting sorry and they were pretty much identical um and i couldn't believe it i thought okay hang on maybe there's something in this and then from that day downloaded the headspace app just built my way up through that and pre-kids obviously a bit more time on my hands built up to you know 20 25 minutes sitting down uh, meditating now it's more like five before the toddler wakes up (laughs) and you know tells me to make breakfast or a sandwich at midnight um and just sort of built that foray um into my you know into my arsenal and my skill set um so i think to get that many games you also have to have a bit of luck but you also got to make your own luck a little bit and um, mm-hmm. I think most of my teammates would describe me as pretty professional in terms of looking after my body, eating right, getting my sleep right, mm-hmm. and being willing to make those sacrifices to have longevity and to make sure I'm in prime physical condition. Yeah, so you've got the physical recovery and the mental recovery. Absolutely. Um, and the mental recovery you achieve through your meditation. Yep. And, and then also journaling. Just, yeah, and just that, sorry to cut you off, that life balance in Perth, go to the beach, have mm-hmm. a swim, you know, immerse myself in nature, go camping with the kids, all that kind of stuff where you can break, break the circuit a little bit from your professional life um has been massive for me i i personally have found and and again just recently um a lot of value out of journaling um i think as as you said the the meditation thing people may be reluctant to do that i like you found it so compelling when i saw the science and you know that this is like strength training for your brain this is exactly the same thing um journaling's another one that sometimes people can be reluctant to do in that they don't really know how to do it yeah and i've got my own views on this but but how do you journal how do you find you get value Uh, out of the process again similar to headspace i found a framework and it's a a journal uh called the inner game which was created by a ex-soccer player an a-league player and it's just got a bit of a template and and some of it i don't use because it sort of talks about like um, what did you eat today all that kind of stuff but yeah. it has three things you're grateful for which mm. I think is fantastic for the day a couple of professional goals um, three positives today three work-ons for tomorrow and then just a little block where you can journal 
and just that uh, that reflection piece has been massive for me in the mm. last sort of couple of years. Disappointed it's not the official Resilience Journal from the Resilience Shield, but we'll make sure you get a copy. I was going to say, I've got to read. Happen. Yeah, I've got to read the Resilience Shield first. We'll give you a journal before yeah. you go. Um, second thing that it, it'd be awesome if you reflect on, we first met when um, Tim and I, well, um, the Resilient Shield did an activity with Western Force, which was a great day. And I'll never forget you describing a grounding process that you use. Um, we were talking about grounding as a way of bringing yourself back in the moment, using your senses to reconnect and to act as a circuit breaker. And the, the one you described was awesome. Could you, you share it with our listeners? Yeah, sure. Full, full disclosure, it's now in a PowerPoint deck that we regularly use. Oh, wonderful. It's actually made its way. How good. <laughs> um, yeah, sure. So uh, one of my main skill sets in rugby is goal kicking. So kicking the piece of leather between two sticks that are vertical. Um, and a bit of a repetitive skill, obviously. And you might have to execute the skill in a game under fatigue or you know after you've made an error things like that and you know after talking to a sports psych wanting to come up with a grounding technique and just happened to stumble across the gladiator movie at that point in my life and mm. uh where russell crowe enters the arena grabs a bit of dirt and sort of rubs it between his two hands um so i sort of view obviously the rugby field as my arena so i'll grab a bit of grass rub it between my hands and you know feel the earth between my feet and my toes listen for any sounds i can hear and then you know rubbing that that grass and that dirt between my hands and my fingers is the final sort of grounding point before you know i move on to the next task or into the arena and yeah just a bit of a reset thing for me and uh i think it's really a powerful tool and something I did with my, my daughter the other day, obviously having a, a toddler that can, you know, is learning to regulate emotions. And I said, righto, um, to my daughter, I said, well, what, what two things can you see? She'd mm. say, and I said, what two things can you hear? What two things can you smell? And straight away, within 30 seconds, we were out the other side. And I, could, I honestly couldn't believe it worked that well. But, you know, it's something that uh, is a powerful tool for anybody to use if they can master it, whether it's, um, you know, uh, whatever their grounding technique may be. I know Richie McCaw um, used to stare at the furthest part in the stadium from what I've been told. Uh, Kieran Reid was stamping his feet in the ground, I believe, so mm-hmm. everyone's got their own different ones. Um, I did hear Richie McCaw was all about slapping his quads and people would think, oh, he's activating them. But no, no, it was, it was the I'm here, it's okay. Yeah. That, that physical sensation of yeah. hands against the thighs, the little bit of the pain involved. Yeah, and it's for serious. the greatest um, for the greatest team, you know, essentially in rugby, to have employed a mental skills coach shows there's something in it, right? right. And they went through um, the 2003-2007 World Cups in the interim to that, by far and away the best team, easily. And then comes to the World Cup, don't get the results they want. Well, what's going on here? They can't be any fitter, they can't be any faster, they can't be any more skillful. Maybe there's something there, something else we need to look mm. at. And they didn't. Made the really bold call at the time to not get rid of the coaches, cohesion again, mm-hmm. keep the same relationships and they employed uh, Gilbert Anoka, I believe his name is, which mm-hmm. was the mental That's skills right. coach, and yeah. talked about going from the red to the blue, which is obviously yeah. that fight or flight mode into the, okay, now I'm here, I'm now, I'm in the present, what's my next job? And mm. just by fixing that, they've gone obviously back-to-back World Cup champion teams and, you know, and thereabouts. And I think the thing with mental skills is, I think, really attractive for me. You get some of these things where they're the, the top 1%. I don't know, you're an endurance athlete, maybe beet juice, concentrate on race day yeah. or something. That'll give you this tiny edge. For the rest of us, it won't make a difference. But mental skills are something that, that can be applied everywhere, that they, they move the needle. You don't need to be at that elite edge just looking for that, that final point. 
these are going to have a, a, a massive difference um, in all sorts of walks of life and not just physical endeavours. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the thing about being an athlete is applicable to everybody. It's, it's just about trying to be you know, mentally and physically healthy to be able to mm. you know, compete and produce under pressure. And that can be whether it's speaking, whether it's executing your role at your job, whether it be you know, running the business day to day, whatever it may be, it's all applicable around looking after your physical and mental health to allow you, um, you know, to produce those results. Yeah, it's all about human performance. That's the, right. The, the arena, the theatre, the, the stage, arena. the field is all different, but it's all about optimising your own performance. Um, as Peter Drucker says, what gets measured gets managed. Have you looked at the data on when you rub um, the grass through your hands, whether no, it improves I, performance? I'd be I, curious to I see. I haven't, and, but, you know, if, again, if I look at my career and... At that tipping point, 2015, I had to do something different. Otherwise, my career just would have mm-hmm. flatlined, I believe, or plateaued. And luckily, I found mental skills there. And now I'm here today. You know, having played this long, I don't think I would have played this long had I not discovered that and my grounding. And mm. um, you know, my goal kicking percentage is up around 90%, which is hmm. deemed up there. Um, so I think that's probably the data that I measure myself off um, and been lucky enough to be able to do that. And maybe it doesn't need to be quantitative, but you know, 14 years of professional rugby and kicking that well. Might make some form yeah, of contribution. Yeah. Say, Tim, ninety percent <laughs> conversion rate. Right. What, what, what other well, data do you want? The ten, the, ten, yeah. the ten percent that he's missing. That's the that's data right. I want. No, but I do, <laughs> I do enjoy the data off the Garmin or the Whoop around. Mm. You know, looking at things like, okay, if I read a hard book compared, to if I just read my phone before bed, things like that, or mm. if I journal, are you a bit data informed like that? Yeah, or I'd like to obviously, you know, see what's working, what's not working, where can I keep improving, and you know, looking to better myself not only as an athlete but as a husband and a father as well how am mm. i giving my best to my kids and my wife and you know at work as well so um yeah journaling has definitely made a difference to the data i've seen in my deep sleep um reading a hardcover book compared to reading a book on a phone obviously right. the blue screen uh, yeah. sorry the blue, blue light, light on yeah. the screen yep um and little things like that stretching stretching's a big one before bed to mm. you know slow the nervous system down and get into that rest and digest mode after having a big day and training at 45 degrees and whacking, <laughs> whacking caffeine to get through it and <laughs> feel like i'm still cooking from the inside out you're still using cold water immersion yep still using cold water immersion are you tracking the effects of that uh probably not as detailed as the other ones i have mm-hmm. uh, but Luckily, just got the wife onto it as well, so I've been mm. buying a few bags of ice and yeah, chucking her cool. in there, and you know she's getting that dopamine hit, and now she's addicted too. So now she wants to do it every day. So I mm-hmm. have to look at the uh, chest freezer, mm. Wim Hof method that everyone's going <laughs> for soon to yeah. save a bit of money on the ice. I do have some concerns about Dr. Dan Pronk's um, renovated chest freezer with 240 volts going into something that's holding water. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Be cautious, yeah. don't, don't, yeah. don't yeah, jerry-rig yeah. it. Or, or I can just use the wheelie bin. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. 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 Well, in fact, uh, one of our colleagues here, Andy, he's got himself a portable ice bath that he uses. Oh, nice. I think every yeah. day. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, a few yeah. of the players have one. Um, it's called the Dope. It's a dopamine ice mm. bath tub, yeah. and I think it sits around three or four degrees. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's a pretty, uh, pretty good way to wake yourself up, that's for sure. Absolutely. That's good. Uh, turning attention to physical training, um, you've just, you're coming out of this pre-season block. You've got round one next weekend what does it look like as you come into pre-season in terms of loads yep. for strength loads for conditioning how does it taper off and then what does it mean during the season yeah sure so um obviously pre-season you're sort of building the base for the tip of the pyramid you know to go up and the bigger the base the bigger bigger the peak so um we'll come in having you know done a probably a block of four to six weeks leave and then we come and we're trying to build the base so We'll you have to work through that four to six weeks. It's, it's encouraged, mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. and I think 
I think. But that's, by that same token, you, you're deliberately trying to cycle down, though, aren't you? you yeah, that's yeah. right. You do have to have a couple of weeks to recover, but then probably a couple of weeks to get the joints ready, the muscles, mm. and the aerobic fitness. There's obviously a few boys that can enjoy the rest a little bit too much that come <laughs> in, but then you're on the back foot, and that's something I've always prided myself on: is coming back in, you know, relatively good condition. Uh, when I was a bit younger, I probably came in a bit overdone, you know, and then I didn't rest enough, so then I'd come yeah. to the start of the season and almost be a bit fatigued because I haven't, you know, done that front end right. Um, and so I get a bit better now. But, um, yeah, so we'll do generally four to five field sessions a week, four to five weight sessions. This year there was a big focus on trying to increase mass, so we did double gym days. So we do, you know, field session, which can be Monday and Thursday are more your extensive days, so which basically means more open field play but longer rest, whereas Tuesday and Friday are more intensive, so high-density axle loads, confined space, um, and more like sort of your starter players, you can scrums and line-outs, that kind of stuff. So um, the acceleration load's the one that puts the most strain on your body, um, whereas obviously running high speed puts more strain on your nervous system because you're trying to fire everything up pretty quick. So um, we could cover anywhere between you know 20 to 40 k's in a week obviously at the start of pre-season it'll be around 20 and then by our peak it'll be around 40 and of that um you'll probably have anywhere between a thousand depending on position again some of the big boys don't run as much as the outside Mm -hmm. backs (laughs) the thoroughbreds our sessions might be anywhere between three to eight kilometers again varying depend on what position you are Uh, but now we measure things in working distance which is anything above two and a half minutes per second rather than overall volume because you might get you know a long walk here or a long jog over there it's not in the session but it still counts as data Um, (laughs) as a runner that still counts yeah that's right put it on your strava it still counts Um, but the big one is high speed meters so it's above five meters per second which is generally you know moving pretty quick um, and we could be anywhere from a thousand to three thousand in a week around that. Jeez. And do coaches limit the amount of those exertions, those efforts that you undertake? Yes, it's all periodized. So we've got um, you know a sports scientist that sort of periodizes it week to week and session to session, and says, right, oh, this drill needs to stop now. We've overreached on what we've calculated mm-hmm. roughly, approximately. Mm-hmm. It's called tactical periodization. Or okay, we've got a bit more in the tank. Let's go for it. Yeah. And what about collision? I mean, TBI, traumatic brain injury is mm. a massive thing, obviously, in NFL, yeah. um, massive thing in the military, you know, aftershocks from explosions and weapons and brain yep. charges and stuff. Um, is it starting to be a thing in, in rugby? I mean, there's a big yeah, hit, it sure obviously. is. It sure is. And, and more so in the Northern Hemisphere, it's taken off at the moment. A mm-hmm. few guys with some pretty, you know, some pretty bad TBI over there and, you know, what it looks like and what it looks like for their families and things mm. like that. So now will rugby have mandated... Um, volume of contact in terms of minutes per week how much you're allowed what's safe what's not safe to the extent of sensors on, on not blood. not sensors but more time i think okay. we don't quite have the um probably the resources yet to do that but now we've actually just been implemented with mouth guards that have chips in them that has an accelerometer that oh, really? shows you you know the force of change of access things like huh. that and that's being used in our hia our head injury assessment protocols so you might be on the game and because we've got match day docs that might see you fall down or, you know, copper shoulder there, okay, we'll bring that bloke off and mm. and assess it. There's other ones that they might miss off the ball, things mm. here, there and everywhere. So if they get a data reading now, they can pull us off, assess us, put us back on if we're okay and keep us off for a night. What's the player's response to that? Because there could be a, a 
school of thought a theory that no one ever wants to go off that's so right I'm gonna and not yeah. wear my mouth guard properly or yeah it is a sticking point at the moment because it is being introduced and you know there's an option not to do it but the option not to do it now is if you do get a head knock you're straight off you can't come back on you can't go through the injury assessment protocol yeah, in okay. a game which could cost your team and yourself controlling points. the incentives yeah. that's no, right very interesting and that's right so um yeah i think that's where things like you know the cold water immersion the meditation all these things that i'm doing as an athlete are going to try and help for post rugby life because you know i have run into repetitively into people for a living and i'm sure there is some damage <laughs> upstairs um but you know that's uh it could be from other things as well that you do in your life where you fall mm. from bicycle being in a motor car accident so um yeah we are doing a bit in the game and i think it will end up like nfl where there's strictly no contact allowed or it's just pads it's not body on body for x amount of time in the preseason, mm-hmm. and then in season okay go for it but there's also a lot of data around well actually that contact prepares your joints mm-hmm. for and your tendons yeah. for the impact yeah. of the game there's a lot of data around that and there's actually more dangerous to go not to cold. do contact yep. than to do contact so yeah just oh sorry i was just gonna say before we leave that sort of preseason and into the um conditioning and training are there benchmark sort of workouts that you need to hit sort of early in the season? You know, AFL famously has the 2Ks. Um, you know, is there an equivalent for that in rugby? Yeah, so it's changed a few years. When I first started, it was a beep test. Oh, yeah. It went to the yo-yo intermittent recovery test, and now the... That was taken from the All Blacks, wasn't it? Didn't it they was. do the yo-yo yep, first? they did. Yep. They and did. then all and the Australian teams climbed it. What's the yo-yo? Uh, so it's similar to a beep test where you run 20 metres up and back, mm-hmm. but then you get a five-second break where you've got to walk around a marker and walk back. So it's more anaerobic than just purely aerobic, which is the beep test. Okay. So more that repeat high-intensity effort, which is quite similar to rugby. Yeah. Um, and now the the flavour of the month is the Bronco. So it's a 1.2K time trial invented by Dan Baker, an Australian strength conditioning coach, which is a 20-metre and back, 40-metre and back, 60-metre and back shuttle. That's one shuttle. Yep. Do that five yep. times, it equals 1.2Ks. Um, and as a rugby player, you generally need to be under five unless you're one of the one, two, or three numbers, the big boys. Mm-hmm. Um, and then for someone in my position, you know, 430 is the standard mark. World mm-hmm. class is around the 415, 420. Um, and Bowden Barrett has been rumoured to do a 411. 411, so 1.2. He is moving with, what's that? One, two, three, four, five, six, 30 changes of direction. That's not bad. That's moving. Uh, that, that we might throw down the gauntlet at you, Ben, see how you go against <laughs> the marathon prep. Yeah. yeah, yeah. My fast twitch is well up there at the moment. <laughs> and the yeah. change of direction, too. Oh, spat. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. Because yeah. it's only subtle change of direction. Yeah, 180 degrees. Yeah, 180 that's right. Degrees. I'm all right. Slow speeds, long distance, straight downhill. line. Yeah. Downhill. Yeah. <laughs> Tailwind. But um, no, that's brutal. That's, that's, um, and that's fast, too. Yeah. yeah. Are you finding your undergrad degree? and your post-grad um, useful in terms of understanding the physiology, the recovery, you know, why this data is important? Yeah, definitely. And I think that's what's um, led me to have the longevity in my career that I've had because I can look at this and, okay, that looks like a bit of a fad. My SNC and physios probably aren't too happy about it because I like to ask why. <laughs> Not so much the challenge but more to learn and I've been famously quoted for, you know, physio coming on to assess me and I've already injury diagnosed myself on the field before they have and sometimes I'm right sometimes I'm not and they all chuckle about it so um, I think it has yeah absolutely and like I said I wouldn't have found mental skills if it wasn't for my neuroscience subject as part of my undergrad and then you know the flow and effect from there and um, the high performance sports stuff I'm doing now which is more S&C side but also you know the business of high performance sport mm. um, but yeah I think it's definitely uh, allowed me to have the longevity that I have okay um, before we leave the force and talk 
rugby a bit more broadly and then maybe what you're going to do after rugby. Um, leadership. So when you were captaining 2018 to 2021, what skills, tools, techniques, courses, programs were invested in you in order to lead better? Um, or if there yep. was nothing, how did you learn? Yep. Fake it till you make it. Yep. That was definitely <laughs> one of the mantras. Um, oh, look, I think, you know, I'd, I'd been in and around leadership groups and those kinds of things and been lucky enough to learn off James Hall, Wallaby captain, Ben mm-hmm. Mullen, Wallaby captain, Matt Hodgson, Wallaby, uh, captain the Wallabies at a certain point as well and, you know, a club captain and legend as well. And then just around mum and dad being small business owners, um, you know, coaches I've had at school. So I think I've had a very good, well, I, had, I was very lucky with the background I had in terms of leaders that I'd learnt off, but now is my time in the saddle to, you know, do what I could do and find out what's my style and what works for me. And um, I think the, the thing I tried to instill at the start was a real ownership amongst the group of, you know, that levels of leadership. It's not just me at the top, you know, dictating what's going on here. Um, a, because I didn't have all the answers, mm-hmm. um, even though I thought I might. And then B, because when we restarted back up in 2018, we didn't have the resources of a pro team. We essentially were run like an academy. So we didn't have as many coaches and staff and these things and the other to add to it. So tried to make sure that you know the way we were rebuilding our values and what we stood for was a collective buy-in wasn't just saying right guys this is what we're doing it's okay what do you want to stand for what do we want to stand for how are we going to get to that goal how are we going to keep each other accountable how are we going to work towards that what does it look like um and really giving the guys around me that level of ownership so it's not if i'm not there because that's the idea that was the idea for me as leadership what happens if i move on or if i'm not playing these Mm. guys still need to be able to function as a club and as a team uh, to be able to lead themselves. So uh, I'd probably say that was my first part. And then the second part, I, I just wanted to be an authentic leader, be myself. Um, one of my things I always tried to do when I used to write my list for the week coming up was set the standard. Mm. So around what that looked like in mm-hmm. terms of professionalism, looking after your mate um, and you know switching off when the time was right. You've spoken a lot and it's come clear that you are a very authentic person. You speak with a lot of vulnerability. I'm almost certain that came out in your leadership style as well. You're not pretending to know everything. How do you balance that, that I guess, vulnerability and the, the knowledge that, yeah, maybe I'm not the best player on the field or there's more experienced people, as you said before. How do you balance that with the presence that you, you still want to instill motivation and confidence and inspiration for your team. You still want to be that rock, yep. even if you don't have all the answers. Have, have you found a tension between those two things in, in your playing experience? Yeah, definitely an almost an uncomfortableness being like, yeah. okay, well, I'm, I'm not ready around this or I'm ready around that. But I think the thing I tried to do was double down when it was within my realm or my skill set that I was mm-hmm. really confident with. Be like, okay, well, yep, I know the answer here and I'll double down on this. And when it's not, okay, I'm willing to go this way and and give that person ownership, all right, we're going to follow this way, this way we're going. Um, so, yeah, it's an interesting question and one, you know, as a young lady, like, oh, okay, are these guys going to respect me if I don't have the answer? Okay, yeah. well, maybe they'll follow him and that's okay to follow that person because they might have the answer, the keys to the door to get to the other side. Mm. And if you don't listen to them, then you're just banging against the wall. So, um, yeah, it can create a bit of tension, I guess. But, uh, again, it's about knowing yourself and knowing yourself as a person, a leader, and what works for you. Yeah authenticity or faking it till you make it how do you tell a six foot six all black second row what to do <laughs> we, we left that one hanging out there. we did we did um yeah it's it's a interesting concept so i just tried to make sure again i think the authenticity part is important in that knowing 
who I am and you know what I want to stand for and who I want to be um, and getting to know the, the individual was a big one because I'm not going to ask him to do something that I, A, I wouldn't do myself and B, if I hadn't taken the time to know him and then I'm telling him what to do or I'm telling him he's doing something wrong and I haven't taken the time of day to find out about him, what mm-hmm. makes him tick, his family, his friends, all that kind of stuff, um, he's not going to listen to me and if he does, he might for the short term but he won't in the long term. So that's mm-hmm. where that, that personability part of leadership comes in for me um and also yeah i guess that that authenticity of being able to be yourself be vulnerable and you know actually investing that time and that person to get to know them Mm. have you seen uh, situations where home performance personal performance has translated into poor performance on the rugby paddock you talked about the importance of family your practices getting to the beach hitting a golf ball have you seen circumstances or maybe experienced them yourself where it wasn't going so well and it had a direct translation to how well you played? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think COVID was probably, you know, a good example of that mm. for all of us. Like we mm. went into as professional athletes into a hub, essentially isolated from society and right, these are the people we're gonna be living with for the next six weeks, ended up being twelve weeks. <laughs> um, and some of us were lucky enough halfway through to get our families to come and join us, but you know, others either didn't have family accessible to them or, you know, weren't around, um, things like that and you know, if you can't get away from the game and then you're dealing with non-selection or is my contract going to get terminated at the end mm. of the year, these kinds of things, like, yeah, it really uh, was a good example of guys that did have it, you know, squared away, um, away from the field, or if they didn't, how they would transfer into their performance and um, I guess, yeah, just their reactability to certain dif- uh, bits of stress. Uh, if if they w- if they weren't prepared or if they weren't okay in that regard, you know, something that wouldn't tick them off would just make them fly off the handle, and mm. that's going to happen in a, a bubble like COVID was for us. So, mm. um, for me, I think 2017 was a good year to experience that when we sort of had the axe hovering over us as a club. Are we going to get cut? Are we not? And you know, I'd see these guys that you know would go to work on the you know some of the toughest warriors on the field. They'd be openly weeping you know on a night out on the beers because that was their release and all this stuff they'd built up and all this pressure um suddenly you know not be able to handle their emotions Mm. um so yeah it's probably i've blabbled on a bit there but it's probably a couple of how did you deal with it that that odd um period where western force gets axed from super rugby yeah there um, was you know very public displays here of players being you know visibly emotional um you know enduringly upset that um, the Western Force was no more, seemingly. That's right, and I think it's a bit of a bubble we live in in sport. Like, you know, a club getting removed is not the end of the world. Like, no one's really, you know, passing away or anything like that, and we are in a bit of a bubble. But uh, it was a challenging time for me and probably fell out of um, love with the sport a little bit and, you know, flirted with the idea of uh, the Special Forces Direct um, mm-hmm. recruiting scheme at that point. I thought, okay, maybe we can go down this this rabbit hole now and I can actually scratch this itch that I'll have wanted to for a few years and then... Um, you know, really just focused on the people around me and looking at life away from rugby. And uh, just from there, luckily enough, an opportunity at the Harlequins came up mm. over in the UK, which was a great experience. Went over there, didn't know anyone. Um, oh, sorry, I knew one or two of the boys at the club, and but it was a new environment, got a chance to prove myself and almost fall back in love with the game and hmm. experience a bit of Britain, um, which was pretty cool, and a real prestigious club in Harlequins. And they were going through a rough patch, but to see the history around the game was pretty incredible and just the history of the UK in general I guess because mm. I hadn't really been there too much before um, and maybe reinforce some of those layers I mean you know we believe that 
um, you know, resilience is built across four modifiable layers. We've talked, you know, the mind, the body, the social, and the professional. Is this reinforcing some of the social components of? Yeah, definitely. Your resilience. It, it sure was, and I think the biggest takeaway from my time over there at Harlequins was, you know, I was over there as sort of a fill-in player, and you're not really a main squad player, but you're sort of in and around the traps. But I really took time to. You know, get to know the blokes and to get to know the guys in and around the squad that I probably wouldn't do normally because I was either studying or you know working away from rugby, getting ready for whatever might come next. But I didn't study when I was over there, so I really got to immerse myself in the culture there. And when I was only there for three or four months to come back to the force when we were re- rebuilding, um, and when I left, the amount of messages I got, I was actually quite surprised because mm. um, I'm naturally a bit of an introvert by trade, and you know. Um, um, Dad described me at my wedding as socially inept, so that was always <laughs> good. But I think <laughs> two out of the three. But uh, I think I think <laughs> two of the two. Of that's right. I think what he meant was that you know I can become pretty single-minded, whether it's uh, mm. achieving a goal or this, that, and the other. And I'm happy to sort of let the other layers sort of <laughs> well, come a time and a place for that. There's yeah. a time and a time and a place for that. Yeah, that's that selfishness right. or that bias. Um, so that was a really surprising thing for me at the time. Like, oh wow, okay, I've really made an impact on some of these guys' lives, and I was only there for three months. Um, and th- I think that gave me confidence when I came back in 2018 as a leader to get to know the players around me a little bit better whereas I probably previously would have been a bit more reserved and a bit not sure of myself in that in that regard I reckon Zooming out but staying in the Northern Hemisphere, we've just come off our arguably worst ever Rugby World Cup performance in France, um, thrashed 40-6 to six by Wales, um, this famous, or what has been made famous, picture of Rob um, Valentini after we got beaten by Fiji, visibly emotional and crying on the rugby paddock. A um, couple of things then, maybe I'll throw to Ben to get your opinion on the problem and then your right of re- reply yep. Ben. Um, a guy by the name of Hunter Fujak, he's a lecturer at Deakin and he wrote a book called Code Wars said to do with Australian rugby. Rugby's big problem is is it doesn't have one big problem. Uh, Sydney Morning Herald entitled a recent article, Wicked Problem from the Ruins Can Australian Rugby Be Rebuilt? And just bear with me as I describe how they uh, explain the problem. Listing the problems of Australian rugby, quote, is a lengthy exercise, but talk to people at all levels of the game and you find the same issues. A lack of focus and funding for the grassroots, atrophied junior development and talent identification programs, spotty pathway systems, the loss of elite talent to rival codes, a lack of coaching development, the absence of a third tier competition, a lack of alignment between levels of the professional game, underfunded women's programs, unsustainably expensive super rugby programs, a fading public profile, and a growing disconnect between community and professional games, and sitting above it all, a dysfunctional federated governance structure where self-interest and mistrust between states and Rugby Australia routinely stifles meaningful reform. And they go on, Sydney Morning Herald, to say, that's the abbreviated list. (laughs) So the title is Wicked Problem, Ben. Wicked Problems? 
I, I know you've never actually fully read our book, Tim, but <laughs> only the chapters you wrote, but they're described thoroughly at page 21 to 23. Wicked problems is a term that they use to talk about what they call open societal problems. So these are not your maths problems or your engineering problems with one solution. These are these intractable things that in almost by definition can't be solved. They're not soluble. They are manageable, maybe. So, you know, we, we've got to right up front look at even just our definition of success. We're not solving this thing. We are managing it and maybe making it better. Um, but, you know, if you want to geek out on this, the, the original paper that coined the phrase out of the 70s, a guy called uh, Rittel and Weber, two, two researchers, um, they come up with this list of 10 characteristics of wicked problems, which are actually really cool to read through. It's a pretty nerdy paper. We'll link to it in the show notes. But two of them, one says wicked problems have no stopping rule, which means, you know, as soon as you interact with the problem, it changes the dynamic and it keeps going. You can't just walk away. So, so maybe the example here is the insertion of a new coach right before Rugby World Cup, thinking that's going to be the panacea. Yeah, yeah, and that's going to have ripples that, that go out. But but also you can't just you can't just sort of axe a team, you know, and, right. and think that's going to going to save it as we saw with the the force. Um, and the other one that I think is really interesting is that every wicked problem is essentially unique, and so it's really easy to say, oh, well, look at AFL, they're doing this, or soccer's you know going well or basketball we should mirror that yeah maybe we can get some lessons but there's not a a solution in in those so i i think it's a really interesting description of of this particular situation because there's not just one silver bullet yeah absolutely super keen on on your thoughts and from the the inside of the the beast well i mean maybe opening up what's the perspective of a professional rugby player on rugby in australia writ large um I think as a as a game we've sort of gone out of the limelight a little bit. You look at you know the powerhouse that is AFL and rugby league, and those players there's a you know more of a personality and you know um, identification of them as both athletes, but also their profiles and who they are away from the game. Whereas rugby union, you know, you might be able to name a couple of wallabies, but back in the day, you used to be able to you know with the rugby world cup, you'd be able to name ten or fifteen easily. Mm. Yeah, all of them. Um, so. Yeah, I think there's a few things we have to solve. The first one for me would be the alignment of the game and, you know, what does the wallaby wallaby look like and how we, how do we reverse engineer back from that need to be able to do this physically, tactically, mentally, blah, blah, blah. Coach development, again, uh, I agree with that one, sorry. That is a massive one. So um, for me, there seems to be a cultural thing in Australia when you compare to New Zealand and South Africa, a lot more ex-players are coaching over there and they're, so they're keeping that intellectual property moving down and all these lessons they've learned as a player through 10, 15 year careers pass on to the next generation so that generation doesn't have to make the same mistakes and they can excel. Whereas I feel like in Australia, I'm not sure if the pathway is quite there or if there's enough incentive to want to give back to the game in that way. Um, there's a lot more guys that end up in you know corporate roles or you know just out of the game in general compared to New Zealand where you look at all their professional coaches at the moment. I think all of them were ex-players. You couldn't say that in Australia, essentially. Um, so those are the two of the big ones. I think the grassroots, you know, the, the good thing about the game is everyone is so passionate about it. And I think if you go and you watch a club game in Perth, Sydney, Brisbane, there's a few thousand people there and they're just loving that community aspect and that camaraderie and that bit of history between the clubs. You know, the old boys and their sons and, you know, their grandparents, they all played for those clubs and came through the years. So I think that's strong. I'm not sure about the third tier personally for me. Um, I think there needs to be more rugby played for those guys that are aspiring to be professional around 16 to 22. They need to get more rugby in them because 
in South Africa and New Zealand, they are playing a lot more rugby through these other tiers. And by the time they get to professional, they've played 50 or 60 more rugby games than mm. Australian players. And that's a lot of experience in the arena. Um, but when I first came to the club program and when I, you know, I think that's what sort of helped me be resilient in my professional careers, we'd play 20, 25 games a year of club. And back then, Super Rugby would run from February to May. And then from June to August, it would almost be this barbarians. You know, if you weren't the Wallabies, they'd all be back playing clubs. So my first, one of my first um, big games was against David Croft, who was a you know, legend of the Queensland Reds. And I couldn't believe I was lining up against him as an 18-year-old fresh out of school, mm. you know, and saying, OK, I've got to go toe-to-toe with a pro rugby player here. And, you know, just getting to mix it with those guys, see where we're at and learn is quite big. So I feel like if we can be able to be more available to the clubs um, in that regard, we'll bring back that grassroots connection certainly to the the top point of the club rugby aspect the federate model the federated model i'm not too sure i don't know too much about that personally but i think that comes back to the alignment around okay what does it look like for a coach or player at this aspect and how do we reverse engineer Mm. back down to that Mm. um because you look at where our game is compared to league and afl i think the you know, hindsight's an easy thing to talk about and, you know, make judgment on. But I think where league and AFL went to free to air was massive for their commercial revenue models and now where they are because of that, whereas we were kind of this almost elitist on it. We're in Foxtel, behind a paywall. These people will watch yeah. us and then we'll be looked after. And, and still are, stand sports. That's right. We don't get that's too much rugby on free to air. That's right, whereas league and AFL made that investment early and now reaping the benefits of it because the game gets seen by more people, means more commercial revenue by sponsors, by partners, all this kind of stuff, whereas we were sort of behind this paywall and, yeah, it was a bit elitist, but once we moved away from Foxtel, then we didn't really have much to stand on from there. Hmm. Will you give us a scoop? Is this going to be your last year of professional rugby? How how many years (laughs) has the body still Um, got in it? Yeah, I I came into this pre-season and into these trial games saying, okay, we'll see how I go at the end and make a call, and I'm... Still keen to keep squeezing the lemon uh, a little while longer. Um, I'm still doing every session and, you know, still going through it all and at the ripe old age of 33. But, um, yeah, we'll see how the, what the market's doing and things like that. I'm obviously very passionate about the force and, you know, got a young family here and we love it here. So I'd like to keep going on, but uh, it's not how the rugby world works sometimes. So we'll see how we go. But definitely feeling good body and mind. Um, Previously, I've been approached by Zimbabwe a couple of times to play for them in terms of trying to gain qualification to the World Cups, and I turned that down in 2023, 2022, mm-hmm. when they last approached me because there was a chance I, I could have played for Australia at the time, and because I'd spent my whole career trying to make the Wallabies, I figured, okay, that'd be a good hat to hang on. Um, that'd be good to hang my hat on, sorry. And uh, unfortunately, didn't quite make it, so then I missed out on the games where they played against Namibia for the team to get the final spot in that pool of death. Mm. But probably a blessing to not play the All Blacks uh, <laughs> with the Zimbabwean yes. team at that stage. But maybe 2027, who knows? Okay. Who Home knows? World Cup in Australia. How old are you going to be in 2027? 36. Okay. Yeah. Well, we've had some old, older rugby players. Yeah, Gregan played to his 37. Yeah, um, yeah so we'll see. See how mm. we go. Yep. Yep. Um, speaking of keeping going, one of the things we like to ask our guests is, is there a particular power song that keeps you going? Is there a, a certain power song, song. That, um, that, that always gives you that extra <laughs> juice from the lemons yeah, you put obviously it. pre-game there's a, a, yeah, a juice from lemons. Um, there's a bit of a mixed bag, but I feel like, I, you know, obviously Blink-182 were here recently. Yeah. Um, I feel like I'm going back into my teenage years a little bit with some of the old school punk rock that's coming across my playlist at the moment yep. you know some 41 Linkin Park these kind of <laughs> things but yeah I'm a bit of an enigma like 
country, R&B, you know, all these kinds of different things. So um, don't have one particular song at the moment, to be fair. I try to mix mm-hmm. it up because, again, uh, law of diminishing returns. If I keep listening to the same song, I'm not going to get the same stimulus out of it. So I try to change it up a little mm-hmm. bit. Yeah, it's scientific it, it, It's scientific with your power song. There you yeah. go. Oh, that's, okay, that's interesting. Well, well you've got to give us one because we do have a playlist on Spotify, the Unforgiving 60 playlist. Yeah. Oh. Probably, I probably attached a bit of emotion last year to uh, Linkin Park song Somewhere I Belong. Mm-hmm. I wasn't Somewhere sure, you know, if this was going to be my last year or if I was going to keep going, things like that. And, yeah, it's the force is somewhere I felt and Perth is somewhere I felt like I've belonged. Like, I've moved around a little bit as a, as a kid and here, there and everywhere. And Perth's actually the longest place I've spent time. Mm. Do you feel like planet. you're an honorary <laughs> West Australian? I mean, Ben and I were not born here, but... We yeah, but hang on, hang on, hang on. I, I'm married to West Australian. I've got, <laughs> I've got a green card. <laughs> yeah. I don't even have that. No, no. So speak there for yourself. You I'm, I'm a card-carrying citizen yeah. now. Anything taking you back east? I mean, you mentioned a possibility yeah. of, of going west to Zimbabwe, but anything? Um, yeah, obviously our family's all on the east coast, my wife and I. So, you know, um, that'll always be uh, a caveat that's there. But, you know, we love it over here. Um, got two Sangroper kids, so <laughs> we've definitely put the application in. But I, I think you've got to be here a while to be an honorary West Australian. But it's hard not to fall in love with the way of life over here and, and just the people as well. You know, mm. Everyone's laid back but ambitious. Um, you know, you've got some of the best coastlines that I've seen around the world. I've been lucky enough to travel a fair bit as part of rugby. Mm. Um, and then, yeah, just be able to take my kids to explore the wa vast uh countryside is pretty cool went to monkey mile last year camping oh, wow. up there mm. cup happened to be in the middle of a couple of heat waves and we we're in a couple of swags so that was good but uh yeah it's uh you know it's a beautiful part of the world perth you can Absolutely. also find non-air conditioning off air conditioned offices here which is pretty special yeah, yeah absolutely you're well read uh from the literature books and you mentioned some uh some poetry uh, man and Marie, and anything you could recommend to people looking to be inspired through the written or spoken word? Oh, I've set myself a challenge this year of a book a month. Mm. Um, so that was one of the New Year's goals. Um, so I managed to make it through Wayne Bennett's The Wolf You Feed book in January, which yep. was quite interesting, sort of about Wayne Bennett the father and Wayne Bennett the coach. And, mm. okay. you know, because he's got quite a interesting background with his kids and, you know, um, pretty physically challenge there and just the life he's lived and there's this super coach as well and how he's worked his way around that and um, that was quite an interesting read and now I'm reading a little bit of Zimbabwe's history uh, Ian Smith's book um, I've forgotten the title now in this mm, Ian Smith uh, Rugby Ian Smith no uh, the former Rhodesian um, Prime Minister oh, okay, okay yeah uh, The Great Betrayal mm. yeah to read up about yeah, a bit of the history of you know my family and how dad ended up in the bush war and things like that and how it all worked out so amazing that's it so far but all, all the books i really read to be honest are autobiography or yeah. <laughs> help books and things like that so um that's have it. you got a stack to get you through a book a month have you already got, uh, a plan I've, got three, what I've got three so far so I see i go at the first three and then do the uh, quarterly assessment and then go from there and make yeah, sure i'm actually great. tracking well out of interest what are you reading at the moment tim are you are you well i'm reading the book that that uh, I showed you before, um, uh, Do Hard Things. Oh, yeah, Magnus. Yep, yep, so I'm, I'm chugging away through that. Um, I have just finished Last Child in the Woods, which is a story about how kids are no longer playing outdoors and the impact of that. And I'm also reading a book called How to Train an Adult, which <laughs> is cool. It's, a, it's actually um, written by a number of professors, a whole heap of um, sort of 
literature-based material in there on helicopter parenting and the impact that's having mm-hmm. on resilience the, the child, yeah, yeah, the child's resilience, but actually also on the parents. Yeah, absolutely. How, how it's diminishing the quality of parenting. So that's been that's been quite interesting. Very cool. Multiple yeah. books. Mm, nice. And yourself? I I've gone back onto a non-fiction bent. Mm-hmm. Um, I've just I love Haruki Murakami, um, Japanese author. So I've I've reread a couple of his. Um, I always stuff this up. He's got some beautiful stuff. Yeah, Murakami. East of what is it? East of the thing. What's his? Um, the, West of the sun. Something. The like one that. that's a bit more biographical. Uh, uh, what I talk about when I talk about running. Great. If you if put that on the list, if you haven't <laughs> that, read that, yeah, that yeah, that that's a pretty cool that's one. Cool. It's cool because I mean I like it because it's about running, but it's also about coming to terms with um, mortality and yeah. and you know being at your peak and and he talks about that through his process as a novelist as well but yeah no that's pretty cool and there's a guy who's running a marathon a year but not really interested in the result of the marathon you know whilst yes the stopwatch is on process yeah Yeah. it's the process yeah Yeah. Yeah. and it's the experience so he's he's doing these destination marathons he's got some variety there yeah yeah but talks very much about his writing in the same breath as his running you know he'll get it he'll do a a running block he'll get up and run 10ks he'll get up and write two hours and, mm. and yeah it's mm. really yeah good yeah. transferable principles it's, mm. it's good yeah. yeah well there was a bit of there was a study actually that just came out about the link between exercise and you know um, achievement at school and you mm-hmm. know re- reporting at school how that's going and how it correlates more exercise generally that the kids are doing the better so they're right. going at school yeah mm. obviously mm. from a mental health perspective but also physiological from the hormonal benefits and um, all the likes there. Mm. Stands to reason. What's your thoughts on, uh, before we leave kids, sport, exercise and school, what's your thoughts on your kids growing up playing rugby, given some of the social stigmas and yeah. some of the physical impacts? Absolutely. Well, I think the young fella, he's uh, he's pretty stocky. He's nearly the same size as my daughter, who's a couple of years older, so hmm. I don't think he's going to have a choice. But um, to be honest, mate, uh, I was pretty lucky in, in my realm um, as a kid that, you know, my parents didn't push me to do anything, and I, I'm hoping I'll be the same way with my with my kids. That you know, if, if there's somewhere they want to go, go um, somewhere they want to play, or you know, some rabbit hole they want to go down, that I'm happy to support that. So I'm not going to push them into any particular sport. But if they like to, you know, play rugby, hopefully after watching Dad play rugby a little bit, they mm. call it Daddy Rugby under the big lights at the stadium. <laughs> hopefully they'll uh, want to enter the arena. But um, yeah, it's an interesting interesting concept. I think it's really exciting. Um, obviously for my son but also my daughter with the explosion of women's sport in Australia yeah. you look at the yeah. sevens oh, athletes we were lucky enough to go watch them Amazing. train and they're some phenomenal athletes yeah. those ladies so you know have role models for not only my son but my daughter in that sporting realm is massive if that's what she wants to chase down mm. down the track at Charlotte Caslick she's bionic yeah, Maddie Levi, she's superhuman. They're yeah. all they're all Amazing. weapons. And and so you're right, so inspiring for yeah. for the next generation of, of female athletes. Hmm. Super cool. Well, speaking of cool, this is far from it. <laughs> yes. So thank you, Ian, for, for suffering through in a, a 40-degree heat wave in an air-conditioned office. But, mate, this has been brilliant. I've really enjoyed the chat, and um, thank you very much for your time and insights. Good luck for the season ahead. Yeah. yeah. No worries. Thanks for having me. I really enjoyed our Bikram podcast. That's a ticket off the list. Keep rubbing that grass through your hands, mate. That's right. And squeezing that lemon. Squeezing that lemon. Thanks, guys. See you
now to the debrief. We try to go always a little further in this podcast and greatly appreciate your input. Please let us know your feedback, the good, the bad, or the ugly. Also, if you know someone who is living a life less ordinary, we'd love to hear about them. You can get in touch at debrief at unforgiving60.com. That's debrief at unforgiving60.com. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please tell your friends and write a review for us on Apple Podcasts. Until next episode, keep filling your unforgiving minutes with 60 seconds worth of distance run. See you next time on The Unforgiving 60.